It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The Ukrainian people are united and resilient. And I learned that the EU and NATO are also similarly united. Putin is acting in a highly intentional way because he knows he has leverage from his energy dominance. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We are going to need to rethink our relationships in Western Europe. We do not want to get into a situation where Russia and NATO get into an armed conflict. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. U.S. ups the sanctions again, targeting more Russian oligarchs as Vladimir Putin pushes further into Ukraine. Shelling the capital city of Kiev, seizing more of the southern coast. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. We'll have the latest on the war with a new push on Capitol Hill as well this afternoon to ban Russian oil. On the very same day, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell pledges to do whatever it takes to stop inflation. Both may not be possible, and we'll talk about that coming up with Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. We'll talk geopolitics this hour with Brett Bruin, president of the Global Situation Room. And we have the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with analysis this hour. It's the images coming from Ukraine are disturbing. New drone footage showing extensive damage near Kiev. The Russian military is busy in the south, as we've been reporting on the terminal, taking the town of Kherson with plans now to move on Odessa next on the Black Sea. President Biden today announcing new sanctions from the White House. They had a cabinet meeting this time again aimed at Russian oligarchs. Here he is. Today I'm announcing that we're adding dozens of names to the list, including one of Russia's wealthiest billionaires. And I'm uh, banning travel to America by, um, by more than 50 Russian oligarchs, their families and their close associates. But there's a new call by lawmakers on Capitol Hill, as I mentioned, to ban oil imports from Russia. Latest piece of legislation on this coming from Senators Joe Manchin. Yes, he's back. And Lisa Murkowski. Similar bills, though, have come from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey. So this is gathering momentum. White House, though, does not love the idea for fear it means higher gas prices. Listen to the reaction today. This came up in the briefing with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Our objective and the president's objective uh, has been to maximize impact on President Putin and Russia while minimizing impact to us and our allies and partners. And I know you've heard me say this a few times before, but we don't have a strategic interest in reducing the global supply of energy. Uh, and that would raise prices at the gas pump for the American people uh, around the world. So who's going to make the final call on this? Of course, Congress can do whatever it wants. President Biden doesn't sign it. All this on the same day Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell testifies before the Senate Banking Committee. This is day two. 
It's not deja vu. He was in the House yesterday, Senate today, saying again he's planning a quarter point hike this month or not if the war in Ukraine changes that plan. I think this month is baked, but going forward could be another matter. That's where we want to start with Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He's with us for more markets. Great to have you back. You cannot separate the war in Ukraine from the job facing this Federal Reserve. Will Jay Powell have to change his approach because of all this? Well, uh, a lot of uncertainty, obviously, Joe, but I, I don't think so. I mean, if uh, I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but if Russia stays in Ukraine and if supplies of oil, energy and other commodities is not disruptive, the impact on our economy is it's not it's not good. And it, obviously, it's, it's getting the, the, the downside is being magnified by all the things that we've been through here. But it's not that big a deal uh, in terms of growth or inflation. So my sense is when all the dust settles, uh, that it won't change monetary policy, that it'll, you know, and actually markets haven't changed their forecast per se, except taking out the half point increase in March. They hmm. still expect seven rate increases this year, a quarter point each time. So Fed funds that futures are not before, moving. And that's the case now. Yeah. Well, but what about the the commodity spikes that we've seen? Does that do you see that just curing itself with high prices cure high prices, whether it's energy or wheat or some of the other other things that we've seen moving metals on this particular uh, incursion here? Uh, how does that change to the benefit? Well, that's a risk premium is built in. It, you know, it, there is a risk. Obviously, that supplies will get disrupted, uh, and so it makes sense that pr- that the prices are up and that risk premium is there. But if if in fact we uh, are able to get through this without major disruptions or even significant disruptions to supply, that premium will start to come in. And then ultimately we'll see more production because prices are high and producers and the oil markets and natural gas markets can make a lot of money at this. Yeah. So I, my sense is that commodity prices, oil prices will remain very high, elevated, certainly over the next few months, probably the first half of the year, but you know, towards the second half of the year, prices will start to come in. It will add to inflation, uh, and it does raise the specter that it starts to infect inflation expectations. So we need to watch that very carefully. But, you know, hopefully it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I don't expect the Fed to need to change policy. Or they're going to normalize rates, but mm-hmm. about the same pace that we're going to do before the, the, this, uh, this event occurred. Listen to Chair Powell uh, from the committee hearing today talking about the expectation or his view on the March meeting. Here he is. I would be recommending and supporting a, a, a one quarter of 1% interest rate increase at our March meeting. If we don't see inflation behaving as we expect it to behave, which is to peak and begin to come down, if we see inflation behaving in ways not consistent with that, then we're prepared to raise by more than that amount in a, in a meeting or meetings. So where are you on uh, your prediction here, Mark Zandi, your thoughts about the next several months and interest rates? Yeah, I, I expect rates going up. Uh, I mean, short-term rates, obviously, because the Fed will norm, begin to normalize policy here. I, I think the uh, the chair made it crystal clear that you know, rates are going up a quarter point at the March meeting in, in a couple weeks here. Mm-hmm. And I expect a, f- a few more rate hikes this year, four in total, a quarter point each time. You know, I, as I said, markets are expecting seven. Uh, you know, I don't know that I argue too strongly with anybody if it's four, five, six, or seven, but you know, something in that ballpark. Is and, that, it, you know, it'll depend, you know, exactly on how things go in Russia, Ukraine. Yes. It'll depend on how the pandemic plays out here and what kinds of disruption, further disruptions there are to supply chains and inflation. But, you know, four to seven, something like that feels about right for this year. You saw, I'm sure, President Biden in his State of the Union address this week says he will make 
uh, combating inflation a priority? Of course, I, I think most at the White House would say it already was one. But is the is the administration running out of ammo here? Is this really up to the Fed at this point? I mean, you can only release so much oil from the SPR. You can only have so many meetings with CEOs about the supply chain, Mark. What else can they do? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, there's no easy policy fix here, either for the for the administration or the Fed, right? I mean, this isn't you know, going to be easy because this is a supply-side shock. You know, usually the Fed de- de- deals with demand-side shocks, and that's, you know, raising interest rates or lowering them, you know, help you out there. But yeah. on the supply side, that it makes it very difficult. But there are things the administration and lawmakers, you know, can and should focus on in, in terms of focusing on inflation, you know, not so much this year, but, you know, next year, the year after, things like, affordable housing shortage was causing rent growth to accelerate, you know, child care costs, the cost of prescription drugs. Those things really matter. And I think they, you know, particularly for lower middle income households who really get stung by uh, the high inflation. So I think those are things that should the administration in in Congress should focus on, but it's not going to solve the problem here and now. This this is, you know, uh, this is, this is, uh, uh, difficult for policymakers to address. It sure is, especially when you're trying to time the landing with the midterm elections. Uh, how yeah. about the jobs report tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow and in general here, Mark, a lot of concerns about workforce participation, even with this historically low unemployment rate. It's getting to be a little bit difficult uh, to understand every month. You remember last month we thought it would be a big disappointment. Uh, then it blew the doors off. There's one estimate out there for a growth of 700,000 something jobs tomorrow. How important is that data going to be in terms of answering the questions we're asking right now? Well, the job market's good, strong. Uh, we created 500,000 jobs, roughly a little bit more on average last year. I, I yeah. think that's probably what we get tomorrow. Uh, you know, that's a pretty rapid clip. I mean, uh, we can't sustain that for very long. Otherwise, you know, unemployment will fall so to such a degree that it becomes, a, you know, truly a an inflationary problem. So, you know, I expect job growth to remain strong and start to moderate as we move through the year. And I would expect more people to come back into the labor force. You know, I think the pandemic is obviously keeping people out. It made people sick. It, it, people had to stay home, take care of sick family members. There were mm-hmm. people, other people are fearful of going back to work. You could see this in the census surveys of people who are not working. They, you know, the, the pandemic really created havoc here. So hopefully this, this thing winds down. Uh, if we have a new wave, it's less disruptive than Omicron, and Omicron is less disruptive than Delta. And I expect people to get back to work, uh, you know, and get get back on the job. So I, I, I would anticipate labor force participation picking up. Uh, obviously, it's not going back to where it was pre-pandemic. Right. How about wages tomorrow? How concerned are you about a big jump in wages again? And how, how set is the market to handle that? Yeah, I you know I don't I don't know why people pay attention to that average hourly earnings number in the report. It's it's really worthless. It's really affected by the mix of jobs that are being added or not added or mm-hmm. lost. You know, so I really wouldn't pay much attention to it. I, you know, the the best measure is uh, comes that comes out of the Atlanta Federal Reserve. They have a wage tracker. Just Google Atlanta Fed wage tracker, and they provide they follow the same workers over time, so it doesn't have that mix problem. And you can see wage growth by you know, way part of the wage distribution by industry, by region, by tenure, so forth and so on. And I, that's a much better measure. It, and it does show wage growth picking up. Uh, and but really, it's for low wage workers, folks in the bottom quartile of the distribution. And and that goes back to my point. That, that's where the pandemic has had the most impact on people not going to work. You know, these are folks that work in leisure and hospitality, retail, personal services. They're kind of on the front lines here, and they've been the ones who've gotten sick and fearful of getting sick. So I do think as the pandemic fades. 
that wage growth will moderate and wage growth in general will moderate and, and, and it won't be quite the concern it has been up to this point with regard to inflation. You have it from Mark Zandi, Chief Economist, Moody's Analytics. Mark, we thank you. Of course, the jobs report be out 8.30 tomorrow morning and you'll be hearing a live interview with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh on Bloomberg Radio and TV roughly an hour later. Thursday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York, and we assemble the panel next for their take on all this. Is it time to ban oil from Russia? We'll hear about it from Rick and Jeannie, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano. We'll look at the markets, check traffic on your way home, too. That's why you're here on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, White House balks at Russian oil ban in new feud with Congress. Isn't that what this White House needed, a new feud with Congress? And it's a bipartisan Effort on the oil ban here, as I read on the terminal, the Biden administration's objections to banning oil imports from Russia puts it at odds with a bipartisan clamor to punish Moscow for the invasion of Ukraine, despite the inevitable pain it would cause by sending gas prices soaring. That's the problem for the White House. Little election, a whole bunch of them going on in November. You want gas prices even higher by then? came up, as I mentioned, in the White House briefing today. Here's Press Secretary Jen Psaki. So it also has the potential to pad the pockets of President Putin, which is exactly what we are not trying to do. So uh, as the president has said, we uh, carved out payments for energy trade and transport from our financial sector's sanctions with that in mind. Let's assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. Great to have you both here, of course. Jeannie, what do you make of this? This is going to be another showdown for Democrats. Joe Manchin today, who's one of the sponsors of this bill, says we have weaponized Russian oil with our policies, talking a lot like a Republican today, although we've heard similar proposals from Elizabeth Warren, from Ed Markey. What does Joe Biden do? 
Yeah, I mean, I was noticing Ed Markey said to we don't need Russian oil or caviar anymore, so we could do <laughs> without both. But, um, you know, it, it does put the Biden administration in a bind. You know, one thing they haven't wanted to do, and I don't think he did well during the State of the Union, is talk about the sacrifices Americans need to make if we are going to go down this path. They don't want to do that. If this is truly in our vital interest, then we're going to have to, and the Biden administration is going to have to make a tough call here. Mm -hmm. And of course, they aren't wrong as you look at how the price of oil has gone up. I was just noting $66 a barrel on December 1st, now 110. Yeah. That's a huge increase. He's right. It's going to be more. But if it's in our interest, he's going to have to talk about sacrifice. Let's pull it up right now on the terminal. $107 a barrel for WTI here, Rick Davis. What does Joe Biden do when it's a choice between, I hate to put it this way, principle or politics? Well, you know, he's it's a jam for him. Uh, it, everybody's going to look at this and say, yeah, why are we buying Russian oil? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, By the way, American, it turned out to be all of 3% last year. So this yeah. is technically a drop in the bucket, right? It's a drop in the bucket. And so you would make the argument, why does why does Biden care? Mm -hmm. uh, he's fight a bigger issue than, than Russia and Putin is inflation, right? There aren't that many swing voters in November who are going to vote on the differences between the Republican and Democratic Party on on Russia, because yeah. there is no difference. Right. But they will vote out Democrats because of high inflation. And so, you know, Biden's just going to have to swallow hard and he's either going to have to stand firm on this argument and sound like he's politically disconnected uh, to the rest of the world and to the American public or uh, and he's got to hope that if he does that, that the price that, that inflation comes down between now and November. Wait, Otherwise, it's a waste. So we're living on hope here, uh, I guess, Jeannie. What if you actually get a bill? What if there's a bipartisan bill that comes out of the Senate, the House, and it goes to his desk? Is he prepared to veto legislation that would ban Russian oil? I don't think that makes much political sense. And I think one of the questions Americans and members of Congress will have as they override that veto is we can't make up 3% of our oil, that we've got that's to be able right. to do that in the short term for an emergency. And I think that's a fair question for them to pose. And I can't imagine politically the White House would want to be in the position of vetoing a bill like this. Well, that's what it might come down to here, Rick. If there's bipartisan support, if you've got... Ed Markey, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Manchin, Murkowski, all on the same page here. Uh, do you suspect that there will be a bill that comes from this? Uh, yeah, look, I think you're going to get a bill from somebody. I don't know if it's going to be that quartet. Uh, I suspect the White House Legislative Affairs Office is hitting the hill right now saying, hey, don't put the president in a tough position. Right. At some point, the Congress isn't going to care. They're going to want to actually stake out this position, whether he signs it or not, and then that's his problem. So mm -hmm. uh, he probably won't get a bill, um, you know, because I think that nobody wants to put the president in the hot seat on this. They're wow. going to make the demag demagogic point that we shouldn't be buying Russian oil. And, and, and the reason Joe Manchin likes this so much is it feeds into his argument that we ought to be doing more in fracking. We ought to be doing more in our own energy security. And, and this administration, because of its commitment to climate, doesn't want to do that. And so that's really where the war is. It's all about domestic supply. So this is all going to come down to, in terms of inflation here and prices, Jeannie, it's going to come down to Jay Powell. And as he told members of the House and the Senate over the last two days... This war in Ukraine is going to be the wild card, and it might make his job a lot more difficult. So are we still having the inflation conversation on the eve of the midterm elections? 
I think we are. I mean, I you know, you when you were just talking to Mark Zandi, he said there's a lot of ifs here, and yeah. and that is the reality. And you know, this whole conversation about energy, it's going to expand. Lisa Murkowski was saying today, children are dying in the Ukraine. As those pictures keep coming in front of people's living rooms, mm-hmm. people are going to start to push the administration to do more. And quite frankly, not just on stopping buying oil from Russia, they're going to ask for more. And I think there will be a contingent asking for some kind of air support or boots on the ground at some point. And that's going to be a tough decision for the White House. All right. Rick and Jeannie will be with us for the hour. Our signature panel on Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to talk more about this ahead with Brett Bruin, Global Situation Room President, former Director of Global Engagement at the White House. He's got strong opinions on this, not just about the oil ban, but also the way we're handling the war in Ukraine. It's coming up next on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Russia's war in Ukraine is now entering its second week. And this could be a tough weekend ahead. As I read on the terminal, Russian fleet approach as Ukraine's port city, Odessa, bracing. Imagine when they come to shore here and try to complete their takeover of the southern coast. We're gonna talk about what's happening likely over the course of the next couple of days in Ukraine. The mission here that the United States and its NATO allies are conducting, preparing for a major humanitarian crisis on the border. And of course, the new sanctions dropped today. We wanna talk about this all ahead with Brett Bruin from the Global Situation Room with a naval fleet reported near the Ukrainian city of Odessa and the city of Kherson taken now. That's down south near Crimea. It is increasingly clear, as I read by Mark Champion on the terminal, that Russia's invasion is gaining pace in the country's open and hard-to-defend coastal plains. Even as its advance is slow to the north, they're coming around from the south. The hope here by Vladimir Putin, of course, is to encircle Ukraine. And then things get even uglier. We're already seeing really difficult images, social media and in mainstream media, rubble, buildings, in many cases in residential areas, turned to rubble by the constant shelling and missile strikes of the Russian military. We're joined now by Brett Bruin, Global Situation Room President, his former Director of Global Engagement at the White House, and back with us on Sound On. Brett, it's great to have you here. We were just talking about uh, the latest sanctions here and maybe what could be next. Interesting to think that Congress couldn't get it together on anything, but now there's a concerted bipartisan effort to try to ban Russian oil imports. Should it happen? I think it should. Uh, Look, we should not be dealing with a country that is committing mass atrocities. We shouldn't be funding him. We should look at every possible measure that we can take to add pressure to Vladimir Putin to increase the cost. And this is not just about a couple dollars at the pump. Mm -hmm. And, Joe, let me turn this argument on its head because you're hearing it out of the White House of, well, you know, we can't withstand an increase at the pump the cost of instability will be far greater. So you could see gas prices rising further if we do not ban Russian oil because there's some sort of dependency or apparent dependency, even though it was only 3% of what we imported last year, Brett. 
True, though it is certainly much more important for European markets. And what I'm also arguing is that if we don't take this step, then Putin and others will feel emboldened. They will know that there are red lines um, that we're just not simply willing to cross. So I think it is important for the U.S., uh, for our allies, to send a clear message that we're not just going to protect certain economic interests. We are going to use every tool on the table. You know, of course, what they're thinking about here, the political aspect uh, going into the midterm elections, the, 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 the most surefire way to lose elections is to have high gas prices. It's the quickest way to touch people. You add some of the other commodities like food, wheat we've seen going through the roof, people's cereal even cost more. They're going to blame Joe Biden, Brett. They are, but at the same time, and I think we've seen it uh, over the course of the last week, this is a moment for Biden. And if he shows the kind of leadership that many of us have been hoping over the course of the last year, that he rises to this moment Mm -hmm. and that he explains to the American people it is um, the small price we have to pay, not just for lives in Ukraine, but for better lives for our children, for a world in which we don't have to deal with these kinds of atrocities. I I think Biden has, and in the State of the Union, he missed a moment there to really explain to the American people why we're doing this and why we have to keep it up. That's interesting you say that because Republicans seem to love that portion of the speech. It was the most effective uh, part of the State of the Union. And, and, and the more difficult question to answer now is something that he got to, committing to put no American troops on the ground in Ukraine. I can only assume, Brett, that you agree with that, but the call to do something is going to get louder if people see Vladimir Putin flatten cities like Kiev and millions of people streaming over the border, likely thousands of people dead. At that point, the White House is going to be out of sanctions options here, I mean, with the exception, I guess, of energy, But that call to do more, Brett's going to get louder. What does the administration do? It is. And I have to say, look, we're already at a million Ukrainians that have fled the country. This is going to put enormous pressure on European countries, not only uh, in the east, but west as well. There are several things that Biden can do. One, I think we have indirect military options. We could look at more drones that we supply to the Ukrainians so that they can reduce uh, Russian dominance of the airspace over their country, reduce the atrocities. I'd like to see the administration look at security contractors to protect Zelensky and other key Ukrainian officials. And obviously, there's a whole lot of operational support, logistical support we could be providing. And let's not forget, Joe, we've got to start hitting Putin where it hurts at home. You see the uh, expressions of frustration, of uh, unhappiness with his leadership on the streets of St. Petersburg Mm -hmm. and Moscow. That's something that we have to engage on. We have to help the Russian people see what's happening both in Ukraine as well as at the Kremlin. Is the move on the oligarchs also important here? You start taking away the yachts like we're seeing, you get rid of the the helicopters, the mansions, all the rest of it, wherever they're stashing uh, their money here. And they might, those, at least the real oligarchs, those who were actually close to Vladimir Putin, start talking to him about maybe, hey, how about a ceasefire, maybe some talks with uh, Zelensky this weekend? Yeah, except Putin has already told them, and they understand the game very well, they have to do this, uh, they have to accept that as the, the price of uh, loyalty to Putin and to Russia. So they are, sure, going to be impacted, but this is not a, a well-functioning system where someone can say, I lost my yacht, I lost 
uh, my business interest, and therefore you've <laughs> got to change course. Right. Putin has clearly thrown uh, all of those rules uh, out the window, and we are now in a situation where the oligarchs don't have the influence I think we ascribe to them. Fascinating conversation, as always, with Brett Bruin of the Global Situation Room as we head into this weekend. Should the president be saying more to prepare people, Brett, for what they're about to see? I think we do need to prepare people, and I think we also have to start talking about the way that we will slow and ultimately stop this uh, cruelty, this campaign by Vladimir Putin. We have got to lay out a map forward. I mean, one of the challenges I had with with I'm sorry, Biden's Brett, we're out of time, union. but I do understand your point there, and I appreciate your being with us. He's the former director of global engagement at the White House. And really interesting insights that we'll throw at the panel next. Brett Bruin of the Global Situation Room. Rick and Jeannie, we reassemble the panel next on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I just checked my inbox while Charlie was talking and I found news. The headline, Secretary Mayorkas, this is a news release. From the Department of Homeland Security, Mayorkas designates Ukraine for temporary protected status for 18 months. How about that? Remember the whole debate about TPS during the Trump administration? Well, Alejandro Mayorkas has just made this official. Announcing the designation of Ukraine for 18 months, he says Russia's premeditated and unprovoked attack on Ukraine has resulted in an ongoing war. Senseless violence, Ukrainians forced to seek refuge in these extraordinary times. We will continue to offer our support and protection to Ukrainian nationals in the United States. Of course, this is what happens. This is the the status that's given when conditions in a country fall into one of several categories. Armed conflicts, think environmental disasters, right? Puerto Rico, countries in in Central America that were part of this, El Salvador, uh, extraordinary temporary conditions, they say. So it looks like Ukraine, we're going to be helping a bit here to absorb the refugee crisis in the U.S. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick and Jeannie are here. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. This is good politics. 
here, Rick? Is this what the administration should be doing? Sure. Yeah. Uh, throwing your hat in the ring on trying to ameliorate the uh, increasing immigration problem that exists uh, with Ukrainians trying to flee a war zone. Absolutely. Uh, no telling how many Ukrainians we could get here, uh, but uh, most of the most of the predictions are pretty dire when it comes to the number of millions of, of Ukrainians fleeing a war zone. So yeah. uh, I think it was perfectly timed. This would be bipartisan, uh, I'm assuming. A genie in concept. TPS has been awfully controversial over the past couple of years. Yeah, I think for the first time in a few years, this will be, you know, uncontroversial. Yeah, Yeah. this will be universally supported and right it should be. We're not going to be arguing in two years about kicking out the Ukrainians because their TPS is up. Uh, In terms of what we discussed uh, with Brett Bruin, interesting uh, take on his part all the way around here, Rick. Do you think this is smart, as he suggested, for the U.S. to be putting more drones in the air potentially over Ukraine. They shoot down a drone, something goes wrong. We could find ourselves in a very different conflict than we're in right now. Yeah, information is important right now, and knowing what's going on there is obviously a huge uh, motivator to put these drones up. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I know that the Defense Department today uh, set up a communication link to the Russian military to avoid uh, so-called accidents uh, that lead to war. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think we're doing the best we can to make a, a best of the bad situation. And, and I, I certainly think having the eyes in the sky are more important than trying to avoid some contact with a Russian army that doesn't seem to know, you know, the sky from the ground at this point. We were talking with uh, General Deptula last week, former U.S. Air Force, I should say retired Air Force General uh, Genie, and suggested that you don't actually have to be over the theater of war uh, for our surveillance apparatus to be working. Is there anything else we can do? There are other things that we can do. You know, one of the questions that that we really need to focus on, though, is, you know, with this push to do more, and Rick just said avoiding accidents that lead to war, that's critical. It's not just about domestic politics, though. It's about avoiding World War III. You know, we have sort of an unstated agreement with Russia at this point. They don't go into NATO territories. We don't get directly involved in Mm -hmm. Ukraine. But when we get this push to do more, whether it's drones or other things, the question has always got to be asked, does Putin think we went too far and does that trigger some unintended consequences that's a really really big challenge for this white house and this administration and quite frankly the entire nato community fiona hill is coming out with a book you probably read about this rick it says in her new biography of vladimir putin and this is someone who spent some time in the room with vlad that she believes he would in fact news use nuclear weapons this has gone back and forth the last couple of days Was he serious? What is he really threatening? But she said she was in the room with then-President Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin when he actually went there and reminded the American president that they have hypersonic missiles and they have them before we do. Do you believe that, Rick, that he's at that level? Sure. Uh, I I think the one thing we've learned uh, about Vladimir Putin, both over time and, and recently, is that uh, he's not going to he's not going to keep anything off the table uh, if if he wants to accelerate uh, conflict in in Europe, which seems to be his plan. Mm. Uh, and if it doesn't go well for him, he is not going to discount the weapons that he has. And that would include uh, uh, nuclear weapons of all kinds. Right. There's 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 all kinds of technical nukes that he could use in theater mm-hmm. that uh, could spark uh, even more condemnation and and frankly, probably inclusion of, of Europe and the West you know, in this conflict. 
I would say uh, that's where real questions come into being as to, you know, just the how state of mind, how state of mind he is. Right. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people talking about, you know, the fact that Vladimir Putin may not be of sound mind. Will we ever know, Jeannie? This seems to be uh, it's becoming conventional wisdom, which can be dangerous in itself that Vladimir Putin's losing his marvels. Yeah, and I don't know if we will ever know. And I think all we can do is judge him on his actions. And yeah. so far, he has been very consistent and done what he said he was going to do. And that's why I agree that you can't you can't look past this notion of a nuclear threat at this point. He said it publicly. He said it many times. I want to ask you both about a new story that popped up today. It kind of surprised me this morning. And that's uh, coming from the January 6th panel as I read on the terminal, Billy House did a great job on this. Donald Trump's advisor, John Eastman's emails, apparently may have evidence that the former president and associates committed crimes in attempting to prevent Congress from certifying the election results. Uh, if you look at different versions of this, we're talking about full-blown uh, conspiracy here. The committee says the emails may contain evidence of obstruction of an official proceeding. That would be conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and common law fraud a felony carrying a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Eastman sued to block the release of the email. So this is in a California court right now. Unclear how this ruling is going to come down, but it gave us a peek inside Rick Davis, what they're talking about, what they think they might be able to achieve in this committee. This would be the first time a president's charged with a crime. Well, and talk about a nuclear weapon. I mean, charged with a crime of sedition, yeah. uh, of trying to undermine a free and fair election in the United States. Uh, this is very explosive. Obviously, this is not a reference to that. This is a reference to trying to get John Eastman to come testify to mm -hmm. the committee. Uh, and it is not a referral to the Justice Department to uh, prosecute, but it sure indicates where the committee is going. And I think that uh, as much as uh, everybody is sort of curious what happens here, I think the committee needs to really start showing its cards. Uh, this is a very important issue. Uh, and now that we've had a look under the tent and see these kinds That's of it. potential charges, I think they need to hurry and, and get this report out in the public. So what, how, how's this going to happen, Jeannie? I know there was, a, there was a thought that Democrats might want to drag this out, let it last closer to the midterms, Kevin McCarthy's nightmare. But is Rick right? we got to get this out now. If you're going to have more hearings, do them in public. Let's get on with it. They should. They should do it as soon as they can, and hopefully in the spring. I do not think they should wait. This should be made public. This is incredibly explosive. It puts the DOJ in a really tough position, to your point. We've never had a president, you know, past or present, who has been under this kind of threat. Obviously, this is an illegal threat at this point, but this is explosive. They should get this material out, and we'll have to hear what the Department of Justice says. But this also, let's not forget, puts the administration in a really Really tough position as well. Do you go after the former president mm -hmm. who may run for president in 2024 oh, again? Man, there's no pressure uh, for Merrick Garland here, Rick. Does it come down to him in the end? Sure. Uh, he is our top legal cop. And uh, anything that the committee, uh, the House and uh, uh, committee that's uh, studying these these issues, uh, whatever they send to him, it's going to be up to him to determine that there's enough evidence uh, that they've produced to uh 
uh, uh, do an investigation and potentially look into a prosecution. Uh, that's going to cast a spotlight on the Justice Department again. Uh, and yet uh, the question is, does Merrick Garland handle it different than Bill Barr, who right. seemed to be doing the bidding of Donald Trump throughout the course of his uh, tenure there? That's right. And until you get out, then you write a book and, you know, they option it for a movie and everybody's doing fine. Jeannie, is this going to impact the midterms? I think it will. I think, you know, Merrick Garland's got to be wishing he got voted onto the Supreme Court at this point. He'd be safer there <laughs> out of politics. God knows that's true. Uh, you know, but I do think this has the potential. That's why I think they really have to get this out. There's no reason to sit on this. And the investigation is going to potentially animate and energize both sides. For yeah. sure, Donald Trump and his team will try to use this to their advantage. Time to start raising money again. Rick and Jeannie, thank you as always. Our signature panel with Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Find that story. I don't know how this has been really underreported today, in my opinion. I thought it was a bombshell when I woke up and... You want to read in now so you understand what's going on when this actually happens. March is Women's History Month. As we celebrate significant moments throughout this month, here's your installment for today with Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1913, the first major parade for women's suffrage took over Washington, D.C. Thousands of women gathered to call for a constitutional amendment guaranteeing women the right to vote. Women had been fighting hard for suffrage for more than 60 years by that time, but this marked the first major national event for the movement. The huge parade was spearheaded by Alice Paul and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Parade organizers maximized attention on the event by strategically hosting it just one day before the inauguration of President-elect Woodrow Wilson. This tactic worked. That's today in women's history. I'm Renita Young. Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Renita, we thank you. Appreciate you being with us again on the fastest hour in politics. It's already over. We'll have jobs day tomorrow and a lot more to talk about here as we head into the weekend. I'll meet you at high noon on Balance of Power. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.